Welcome to the 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast, a retrospective. Hi everyone and welcome to another edition of 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast, a retrospective. I of course am Bob and I'm joined today by Chris, Brennan, Nick, and Mike. How are you guys doing today? Real good. Doing swell, Bob. (laughs) All right. Uh, Today we're going over a player's guide to the high clans. Now it's a beloved thing for the dark ages. A lot of people like it. Um, some mixed reviews. I've, I have seen a couple with weren't so one side like the Low Clans was, um, but we're going to get to that. Um, today, though, as always, we start with a prelude to some of these great books, and the prelude title is When the Waters Stop. Mike, why don't you help us out with that? Uh, yeah, so the, the prelude is, um, it's, it's, a good, it's a good little story. It's a good little tale. It, it reads like the um, first chapter of a, a fantasy novel, perhaps. Uh, our our main character is Floretta of Lisbon, um, and she is the daughter to a, a dutiful, hardworking dad. Right, and the story spends a lot of time focusing on how she has learned to cope with the amount of effort he puts into his life. Um, eventually, she's old enough that there's concerns about what she's going to do um, for the duration when she gets away from dad. Um, she's very smart, um, smart to the point of almost being snappy at people um and <laughs> rightfully so right because you can kind of read in the way she feels and the way people talk to her um that she's being looked down upon and, and a little bit mistreated for being a woman um and she's way way smarter than, than folks give her credit for long story short they try to marry her off to a couple people and this guy who's obviously a vampire comes into her life um He's Issachar. Uh, he's trying to be one of her suitors, sort of, question mark. Even when the uh, even though when the opportunity presents himself for itself, he, he declines. Um, but Floretta finds her way to the, the court in, in Barcelona, and there's immediately evidence that Issachar and Cristobal and um, to a lesser extent are all interested for their own reasons in whatever her outcome is going to be she can read she's smart the prince has use for her. it was by a directive it was not a coincidence that she found her way there um but to kind of wrap that all up there are themes of class struggle um reason versus religion definitely a focus on the amount of loneliness that this young lady experienced and um several characters competing to determine her fate as though that is their right and you do get the distinct impression um, that it's just something they're all used to. Nobody's surprised by it or even irritated by it except her. Um, well, and you know, she's the one getting stepped on. Um, but even with all of that being said, by the time I was done, it seemed to me that the story didn't have enough time to do what it wanted to do. It was like it was like a prelude, but I'm I'm kind of used to the opening fiction in these books being short stories that wrap themselves up by the end and this this prelude distinctly um didn't give that impression uh but it was still you know fun easy to read i, I wouldn't recommend skipping it I'm, I'm of the opposite opinion actually i felt that the story did need to be skipped um because i didn't know i didn't know what it pertained to the rest of the book right mm-hmm. i knew they were trying to show you an example of a court i knew they're trying to show an example of privilege taken away but it opens up like a novel that didn't seem to hit what yeah. what the what the goal was or the point of it was. 
I mean, even comparing it back to the the guy to the little clans, that opening story at least led you to insight into what they, you know, the time in the life that you could easily understand. But this seemed yep. like we were now, this is the beginning of a novel, and it's only giving you a little bit by the rest of the by the rest of the novel to get the rest of the story. Here's where here was my that, we know my takeaway, but I'm like, when you do a prelude, and they've done these so well in so many other books, that it's like it, it's wet your whistle to what's coming. Where oftentimes it leads into the rest of the book to kind of give you those insights, right? That's what I was looking for, is that understanding. So that's uh, that's why for me it's like, uh, typically I'm not the one to dive in about those preludes anyway, you know, let it go. It's just a little short thing. But it kind of just, what happened? We were spoiled. We were spoiled mm-hmm. from last book is what it was. Yeah. I'll go with that's, that. Yep. <laughs> All right. Off, soapbox kick to the side. My bad. Katunk. So in this book, the the we used something that wasn't in Road of Sin, right? Road of Sin really didn't give you any lead as to what to expect in the book. It's just read the book and have the Road of Sin. We were very happy with it. We didn't like that format because, we again, we were spoiled. We were used to one. But they bring back the, the old format, right? And so now we have an idea of what their themes they want in this book, which is damnation, ambition, divine right, and war itself, right? How to use this book is back. Cool. We can deal with that, too. I love that. Um, but once you get an idea of what to expect chapter by chapter, really what is the players got to the low clans and, or high clans and why you're into it is because you want to learn about the clans themselves, right? That's, that's my focus every time. So going with this, I'm going to give you the boring one. I am, I am telling everyone, not that the Bruja are boring, but there are people who could quote to you the history of the Bruja by now, I'm positive. It's like the most popular clan. Everyone knows about the Bruja. Now... In this book, it tells you from the perspective of a skeptic, an Ashen priest by the name of, uh, well, Ashen rabbi, I guess is the appropriate terminology, named Yitzhak. This guy is basically, it takes you by the nose and he's telling you all about the Bruja with a bit of humor, I thought, where he's a little tongue-in-cheek about it. First case is that he talks about the whole idea of Bruja who gets murdered by Troil, right, which is the classic story. Like, all right, so... Troil kills the antediluvian, so they say Troil could have been a male or a female. We don't really know, but we know that's the gist of it. Why does it happen? Right here. Bruja, stupid. <laughs> it's that simple. <laughs> that's, that's how I've always seen it. This guy got so tripped up with whatever. Troil's game was so good that it convinced him one way or the other to fall in love and to have this close-knit relationship. That when Troil decided to do what he or she was going to do, you couldn't see it coming. Did him in diablerie, no less. This wasn't, oops, I staked him and left him in the sun, or we warred, accidentally chopped him in bits. It's, I diablerized him. So there's clearly a huge story that's missing, and Yitzhak, more or less, is like, yeah, we don't know what happened with that. We're going to roll forward to that. Really, that's over, that's over there, we're over here, right? Then it talks about the, Bruja, remember the second city as a utopia. Whether that's true or not, that's really where they start thinking of uh, this whole utopian idea way before Carthage. Yep. I don't know how good I feel about that. I heard it said, and I'm looking at it, and I'm trying to weigh the second city for Bruja, what happened there. Did vampires really open, according to Nod book? I'm over all these books, not this one, looking for it to say it. However, in this book, it gives you a tip. Yeah, life is good. It was cool. <laughs> Left and right, everyone's having fun. Okay, sounds good. It's different from what I've heard, but we'll take it for what it is. Then he gets to Greece, and he says, just so you know, 
we're overlooked a lot when it comes to Greece. That's what I took from it. And he starts like yeah. name bombing, right? He starts saying like in Athens we were Bruha. Don't forget mm-hmm. that we were there, right? You know, Lacedaemonia Leca- Leca- or Sparta uh, later on is uh, sure, sure. You might have had the Lycurgus reforms and you venture had the Spartans, but when you quit on them, Bruha was there, right? <laughs> And if you didn't like them, and so on and so forth, kind of like highlighting, we were everywhere trying to do something, and that was bring back Carthage in our own way, once we lost it. Sort of softens the blow to then turn around and tell you, Carthage, okay, this is the second hurrah. This was we screwed up for the second city, now we're here, and uh, we're trying to do some good. And everything was fine. Everybody came out to see what we were doing. Asimite stopped by, high five, much love to Hakim, we're kicking rocks. Hey, there's a fire pit. We're going we're gonna to cook a pig in the ground. Put some beer on ice. It's going to be great. Everybody come on over. And all the other clans are coming. And they make it seem like Venture walked over and went, Was I not invited? And Bruja looked at him and said, Nah, you fucking weren't. <laughs> you going to stay, though? <laughs> and and Venture was like, I, Oh, I, I don't know. I'm, uh, oh, he was triggered and scurries away, right? Goes back to Rome. <laughs> and when he goes back to Rome, you know, he tells Cato. And as we know, Cato's like Cathago Delendo Est. Carthage must fall and Cato wouldn't shut up right Mm -hmm. or in truth how they're not telling you is the fact that Rome was already eyeballing Carthage for its own reasons historically look at that and why that's important here is because this goes on to tell you they didn't understand why all of a sudden the clans come in and they give you the impression that all these clans just laid waste to Carthage and smoked it yeah there's no clan powerful enough to decide to up and jump a city that knows how to fight let me underline what Carthage was. This is a group of people who knew how to fight since fighting was fighting. They're on the yep. coast. They're a trading port. They knew how to get a spear and stab someone to death. And then that's a possibility at any given time. They had a badass cavalry. They had a lot going in Carthage other than just a blood pit, Moloch, and some BS. So, and the Bruja were a part of that culture, right? It took four Punic Wars. Right. Four Punic Wars to take them. <laughs> Not one, like you'd think. Four. But some reason you don't see that here. It's like gets it no what wasn't our fault it's nah man you were there cool you were chilling with this war culture everything was going great and they were really got it going on you know what's interesting about war culture blood sacrifice they got gods to kill for <laughs> right and they had them in spades and you know they did and so when they mentioned the bali it's like yeah it might have been some bali they were here what want to fight about it it's like, <laughs> no we're cool he's just so like uh troil loved uh loved uh malik ever heard of malik no no Bali, don't worry about it. Here he's really cute. And there they are doing their thing and they're sacrificing their god. And the Asimites were like, oh, way to go. We got Hakim. We do the same. We sacrifice to him. And then the venture came over and go, what are you doing, Asimites? You too? Oh, no, we're here to kill them. Really? Oh, yeah, you're coming. Oh, that's Rome behind you. Oh, so we'll help you. He's bad. Right? They, they just, in other words, they come in and they completely ignore the fact of what the Asimites allegedly themselves said that they do. And just... The Asimites disappeared, don't help them. And then it's Malkavian, Torador, I forget the third. Well, Venture, obviously. That come in and just destroy, wreck Carthage. Now, they didn't just wreck Carthage. They then salt the earth. So nothing can rise in the ground. Here's what they mean by that. Now, I don't know if the people who wrote this knew this. I mentioned it. Please do yourself the favor of looking up what actually happened in history was more atrocious and has not been repeated ever. When Rome came there, they took the wounded, the enfeebled, and the uh, just just weak people that were... Like, if you had a had an old man who couldn't really walk, or was missing a foot, 
and he was lying there, soldiers would drag him out to the street to make him under the street. They would put him in this ditch as they were building the road as Roman soldiers marched through. They were pulling down houses of Carthage and just paving it with actual people and not caring who was trapped inside. As there's an article where how they write it in history that I remember writing, I'm paraphrasing, I don't want to butcher it other than to say, I felt torn emotionally to read it. Right? What they mean by salt the earth is that as Rome, wherever it conquested, it also often built infrastructure to build on top of it. And they're famous for road structures, for base building, and what that's what they did. They did no less here, and they did it at the order of a general. And by the way, that general, who often later on said he had trouble sleeping at night, he did not feel good about what happened in Carthage, and it, it was a haunting endeavor. And so I'm like, that should have made this book. Right? Mm-hmm. Was was me immediately. I was like, man, that that was gold to put in there because we still don't know what possessed Rome to be that fuck you and everything else that you came with when it was like they were just a port city opposite of you you didn't like. What occurred? So for the most part here, the uh the Bruja, that other than me, that part's ignored, but they talk about once after Carthage happens, what happens to the Bruja? Really, two mindsets begin developing. You have the elders who remember Carthage wanting to slam home the rage. They want every vampire after Carthage to carry this burden of emotional distress. Then you have Bura who just don't give a shit. Where they're like, yeah, it's great. Carthage sucked. We're getting uh, our rights taken away from us now. We got princes trying to kill people for no good. There's diseases. We, We got issues now to take care of. We're not trying to build a Carthage. We're just trying to live at this point. So we'll get back to you, old man, and, and do your thing. And this is your birth of your idealist and iconoclast, essentially. This is where this comes from, this divergent of philosophy. To add it home, you had someone like Dominic, uh, the Bruja elder, who was embraced during the fall of Carthage, who decides he's going to run forward and attack every venture plan that came out of Rome since and tear it down. He's got mercenaries doing hit-and-run taxes, doing all these crazy things against, you name it, venture, Tremere's, Zemise, doesn't matter. But the fact is, he's not that effective. Because there's just too many, and it's just him. And eventually he disappears. Transylvania Chronicles tells you what happens to him and his fate going forward. Now, a question's going to come up, uh, and I'll nip that early. Is, is this the Furious? Could be. You could say that. You could say Dominic inspired it. But more importantly, I'd have you direct towards the Prometheans. Right? The Prometheans were alive and thriving at this time. And that's, just, that's something I don't want to take up here, but just know there's another faction in the Bruja already talking about, well, the freedoms. You know, in particular, Carthage lost. What does it mean? Promethean is supposed to be an idea of rising from the ashes and what that's about. That sort of thing is, uh, is, is there, to do, excuse me, there to discuss as well. Uh, with that, it's more or less your, your Bruja. Now, why I'm bringing that to a, such a short close is for the simple fact of we know the majority of the Bruja, and here the book does not deviate that much from what you already know. Right? There's nothing really that stands out separate. I've said nothing that shocks anybody here. I'm, I guarantee that except for the what was not in the book and mentioning snippets of history you might want to check out. You guys have anything to add to that? Why? Why did the Bruja as a clan seem unable to take responsibility for their actions? <laughs> like... <laughs> Well, I don't know if I'm being harsh or not, but <laughs> I don't think you're harsh. You're talking about the fact that they seem victims. Yeah, because this is written from the perspective of Yitzhak. The danger of any of these books is that you buy them at the store, has White Wolf on the label, and you say it's canon. 
Everybody wants to say that. The holy canon shall not be defied. However, what's the voice it's written in? What's the character portrayal that comes from it? Taken yeah. into account. And of course, they're not going to take responsibility. They He automatically says he's Bruhad, but that doesn't mean... I, I don't necessarily hate Ventru. Uh, just because of what happened in Carthage, I see what happened, but we're also in group. We're, all, we're trying to rebuild it everywhere. So if it was so great, we'll figure out a way. By the way, I'm working on Poland. I'm trying at the long game to repair Poland to where I need it to be for, for my beliefs. So that's that's where I'm at. And he hammers at home. So but that's why in this book, they're not taking responsibility because really there's nothing they did. I think another thing worth noting is like, especially the, the great segment about this in the Bruhan for those folks that are interested, this is the departure from when they're originally known as zealots into being rabble. Um, and the reason that happens is exactly as Bob was mentioning. They just have way too many pet project projects. They're losing power because all they know how to do is set the fire, but not know how to control it. So it's like I start this, but I walk away from it. I move over here, and I walk away from that too. Whereas other high clans will probably notice, you know, solidify their power. Bruhar, like I'll start it, and uh, I'll leave this puppy over here, and just walk <laughs> away from it. So, so would you say the Bruha clan weakness isn't really rage? It's a short attention span. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. I, All that I, passion. I just I don't think that could be made more obvious than Dominic and his merry men trampling through Transylvania. Right. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Let's I mean, come on, let, let, let's call it what it is. But with all that said, um, this leads us to Brennan and the Cappadocians. Yep. Good old clan Cappadocians. So, <clears throat> um this section starts out talking about, uh, well, of course, like all the other sections, the history of uh, the Antediluvians. And I've got to say, I think this is, out of all the books we've uh, reviewed thus far, I think this is my favorite story of the Antediluvian. Uh, like several others, no one no one knows what his name is, right? They just call him uh, the Cappadocius, or the Cappadocian. Uh, but uh, one of the things that was interesting was that apparently he went by this moniker. That was, that was the first thing that was interesting about him, at least to me. The second thing is, Apparently, he didn't have any childer in the second city, right? Oh, so he's just. I'm going to stop you there. Yeah? Because there's oh, a side. Really? Oh, well, I'm going to stop you there. There's a side blurb <laughs> that talks about a shirt. Yeah, there we go. That said that might be his name, right? Mm -hmm. I went deep on this, or I went hard on this because I was like, hang on a second. Because there's someone else that was called a shirt, too. A couple. There's a couple of you going, what the hell? And that mm -hmm. same excuse was given, right? It says, fun fact Zemis does not have a name either. He's yep. just the eldest, right? Coincidence? Mm, put on your foil hats, folks. Zemis <laughs> is credited with making the Bali. Absolutely. After he's made by Inesh and he gets to walk away from the city, it's one of the first things he did was he walked over and mauled a bunch of demon worshippers in a pit to show them what real evil was, dropped his blood in a pit and walked down, which is exactly what the, the Salubri would tell you is something that occurred. I mean, it, this gets weirder. Asher is credited for making the Bali. Completely. Yep. It says regeneration. Okay. All right. It yep. gets worse. Ashur is also an old Assyrian uh, for the capital uh, Asher and the name of their warlike deity. So mm -hmm. interesting, right? It says that in this place, all three founders of the Bali are from is Ashur. It's named that. Interesting enough, Cappadocius, Solit, and Zemis, number three, and all have a legend regarding a hand in that bloodline's creation. So where's this, where's this story coming about? However, elder members of Clan Cappadocian have called Cappadocius Asher. But is that his name? Now, that comes out of the Encyclopedia of Empirica. Mm -hmm. right? That is a canon book that they throw in there for information just like this. 
But they always leave that out, that Mike Cates and I myself can't stand. Is, is, <laughs> is that really his name? Well, then it gets worse. Asher embraced a person named the Shaitan. Also Anoya. So Asher was apparently <laughs> another, was another second gen? Just kicking rocks, was out to the side, we didn't hear about them. And he made the Asherians, right? However, where this comes from is the Chaos Factor. And the only reason why I treat the Chaos Factor as a book source, because they plagiarized the shit out of that story about the creation of the Shiatan, or Ashur as he's called there, or what have you, that when they throw in Anoya, they outline Anoya as being a bloodline. The Gingro are a bloodline. I'm like, nah, what? Okay. Yeah, because if Asher was a second gen, then at that point, you're talking about both the uh, the Gangrel and uh, and the the Bali being full blown clans. Well, they're full blown clans is what you're thinking, but gotta remember, there's only the vampires they make. They're not a clan. A clan means there's a lot of you to share these traits. So they're known as Ashurians because Ashur made them. It was like two of them and another five people is what they more or less hint to. Like there's a couple over here off on the side. This is often the myth people go, there's more than one second gen. I know, I read it somewhere. If you look it up, yeah, there is. It, it does say that that's what's there. Is it true? That's the big question mark. Run your game and tell that story. But that's what they have. And we're trying to figure out close to canon what they were going for. However, when you get to the fact that the Gangro is a bloodline of the Asurians, as is the Bali, well, clearly they retconned the crap out of that. And totally kick that to the trash, right? I want that to be put to bed. Because you never heard of the Ashurian clan unless they're nope. selling insurance, right? That's, that's what it reminds me of. Well, so, the Ashurians from Assyria? Then, Clan Book Bali states that Ashur did make the Bali. This is after all this was retconned. Mm -hmm. Okay. So your dude was named Ashur, no problem. But then Clan Book Salubri states that Solid made the Bali. Huh? Was it all three? Interesting. Combine that with the Zemisi origins where it says Inesh had a, had a vision. He said, hey, I'm going to get rid of all the evil in me. I'm going to purge all the evil from me. Super oh, concentrated blood. Yikes. And he points to the wizard oracle that sat in the city. And he goes, hey. <laughs> it just vomits this gout of filth at him. And apparently this mortal was like a hungry, hungry hippo. Just give it to me. Give me all, daddy. And he drinks it all down. Right? Like and he that, baby birds this evil into it. him. Right? Just <laughs> down just into him. And this guy gobbles it. it up. And then he looks at him. He's like, oh, you survived. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. He goes, oh, how are you feeling about it? Right? And I was like, okay. Well, apparently that's what... And then what'd you do? And then... I decided to embrace him, says Enosh. Why? Why did you... Wasn't the point to kill evil? And wouldn't you kill... No. It was an experiment. And then the Zemis go on to say, clearly it was an experiment. He took all that was great within him, Enosh did, that made him a vampire, concentrated it, and baptized Zemisa, knowing he was the only one to hold it. And then embrace him. <laughs> and then waltzed off into the highlight, probably Tanith Balsalad playing a flute for him, Walked off into the distance and, and made the Bali. And I'm sitting here going, if Sugar Shorts the flute player was there, then it must be true. Back to you, Brentron. Okay. So, uh, sure, there we go. We had that uh, great uh, segue. Uh, it goes through here, and it's it's really just all about Cappadocius, uh, his travel uh, from Second City to now the Dark Ages, because this is one of the ancient Diluvians that's still up and about and walking around. And it goes at length to talk about the uh, the revelations this Cappadocian has. Cappadocia sees a vision of an angel saying that God wants you to to succeed in your mission, 
right, on, on your goal, and he has sent me uh, to you uh, to, as proof. And Cappadocius bursts out of this rock, like, as though he was, like, Superman busting through a wall, or the Kool-Aid man. That's what I saw him <laughs> as, right? Just busting oh, through it. And oh, apparently yeah. he did it with such force, <laughs> he made a hole in this mountain from the living world to the underworld, which people will recognize as the Well of Bones. Cappadocius becomes a Christian, right? Because this was within a hundred years of Christ being um, uh, crucified. How and freaking charismatic was Jesus? I'm just saying. <laughs> I, I don't know. charismatic? Hey, if I had a vision that an angel came and told me that God believes in my plan, I might just sign myself up too. If you could punch a hole into the Shadowlands and you're like, remember that guy who died like 40 years ago? Died of the cross? Like, yeah, what was he saying? <laughs> do to others and turn the other cheek? I think I need to do that because I can't go around sleeping and becoming a rock and punching holes into the afterlife. It was his turn, Bob. It was the soul glow. That I think really what it was is... <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, uh, from here, um, Cappadocius focuses on um on well researching more uh gathering every text he possibly can related to god uh focusing with a christian bent but uh through this uh oh, as the centuries pass um and the the clan grows as cuz they go embrace more so that they can um uh, infiltrate uh the church or gather more research uh resources for their searches uh apparently uh, the Cappadocian clan gets kind of lazy with their um, uh, grooming process, uh, so much so that the uh, clan founder, uh, Cappadocius, uh, is no longer happy with the clan. But he takes them all to, I believe it was K. Mockley specifically, where he starts uh, well questioning each one, one by one. Uh, he's sorting out uh, the illiterate, those who are not involved with the church, those who do not uh, even have any knowledge of, of necromancy of the dead and he kicks them all into a hole uh kicks them all into a vault all the ones that passed they're allowed to go out and he he leads them out and after he walks past the threshold he turns around and states let no get of cain leave and let no child of seth enter and then they just leave but yeah to actually um i guess kind of round this out with the the third and final revelation is uh, uh Cappadocius sees a vision of himself as uh although he's at first it seems as though he's uh, dreaming of the crucif uh, crucifixion of Christ however it it changes to instead of Jesus being on the cross it's him and the there are people weeping around him and apparently this is his reason for uh his final uh goal that he's going after is to diabolize and thus become uh god in this entire time i keep thinking I don't buy that he's had any of these revelations. I'm I'm pretty sure he's these are just like ideas he's putting up to make his clan follow behind him because this is a batshit insane plan. Or or an antediluvian or a schizophrenic was embraced as an antediluvian and this is what we get. It's one of the two. Uh you can't talk about the Cappadocians and ignore the Giovanni. Uh, it does talk about how um, Augustus Giovanni came uh, to the attention of uh, one of the Cappadocians, um, Constantia, I think her name was, uh, who um, uh, Jepeth apparently from the outset was against 
the Giovanni coming in. I guess he had some foresight foresight in this, but uh, it, it states that uh, when Cappadocius found out about the Giovanni, he he left at the chance like, yes, get him embraced immediately. <clears throat> Augustus Giovanni eventually does come around to uh, being being embraced. Uh, and with this, uh, the Giovanni family is starting to be brought into the clan as a whole. Um, several of the reasons that are put uh, out uh, for face value, anyway, was the um, number one, the mortal necromancy that the family was known for, and also the vast amount of resources because they were an uh, incredibly rich family. Those resources could be used to help fund uh, church constructions to help uh, the Cappadocians get more sway under the church, or to help find all these uh, handful of texts that they're looking for on uh, on God or um, other religious texts. Um, the I won't speak too much about the Giovanni right here because they do have their own call out later in the book. But um, uh, the the final notes on this thing on this uh, section is that the the Cappadocians are are defined by their uh, obsession. Uh, scholarly obsession uh, specifically with uh, religion or Abrahamic religions. Um, overall, I found this a, a great uh, piece for the Cappadocians to really get into the, I guess, the mindset behind them, which is entirely focused on their antediluvians. Antediluvian, rather. All right. Thank you, Brennan. Uh, this brings us to Lissandra with Mike. Uh, okay, so the the Lysandre section opens up um, with kind of an ominous quote, uh, and I guess it's there to satisfy us with the fact that they don't tell us who the author is, um, even though there's one or two sidebars that try to create a little mystery and speculation, blah, blah, blah. Um, but the Lysandre antediluvian, he has the same popular myth or tale-telling as a lot of the others. He came from an innocuous life, and who he was before was not important. He was but a but a mortal man before he was elevated by the power of Cain. Um, but then we we move. Go ahead. What what's that quote? You got that quote? Ah yeah yeah yeah. The quote is um, let me get it. Know that truth is not <laughs> know that truth is not found in words or even in deeds, but only in the stillness of the darkness alone with yourself. Um. If that quote comes directly from the author, the author could very well be the antediluvian himself. I, I don't know, but that, that feels like a, a really tight, concise um, statement of his approach to things. Or like a dad tired of being asked questions? Yep. Yep. Take your ass to bed. Stop asking me stuff. Nah, but um, so at the point where a lot of the other antediluvians start getting into the antics that they're known for. Um, in the first city, the flood, the second city, we don't we don't get a lot. It's very much he was there and he was badass and moving along. Um, but then the strange thing that I, I can't think of having read anywhere else in any other book, but I'm like 90 percent certain I've heard Bob mention this before, is that when the deluge comes, instead of just skipping over it like it's a footnote, um, like they do with tales of a lot of the other antediluvians talks about the fact that La Sombra dwelt at the bottom of the great flood for an extended and unknown period of time. It, right? it, like, it did. 
in in the way they point this out, yeah, which is uh, I want to say I read it from the book of Nod, where it talks about that's what he did. But they, it's only in line, but it's ominous where he found. Well, think about it. It's Lissandra. Why would he be in the deepest, darkest part of the ocean? Because it's like swimming through ink. He's alone. He's in the darkness and of the darkness, and that's that's its own point. And it's it's yep. there's a couple places that have it in the whole ancient lore type. But that's why I don't believe he's an old man sitting in Castle de Ambrose waiting to get D out. <laughs> that's why uh, they also kind of like make mention as like this is the, the spot where that true spark of the love for the sea happened. Because he found this place that was somehow deeper, darker, and thicker than the, uh, the only darkness he'd ever known, which was the night sky. But the next kind of big bullet point that we come to about the Lasombra after Cain curses his children there's the diaspora um, is that he was worshipped by uh, people called the Hyksos um, I didn't have an opportunity to look too deep into this but I, I feel like the Hyksos were an ethnic group I can help you out with this Okay, that's because this is being told by an unknown author mm-hmm. that calls them, you know, the story anyway and they misdo this there is a confederation called the Sea Peoples, which are a conglomerate of different cultures. It's like that the Phoenicians, right? It's similar, but they don't know where they came from. They call them the Sea yep. Peoples because Egypt didn't know where the hell they came from. They came yep. from the sea, and that's the only thing that's on them. But these people were nigh destructive. When they arrived, they didn't just take what was in the city. They would take your city, if not your life, or probably both, if you were in the way and moved on and gave zero about what you thought about it. And that's what happens. The Hyksos are vastly different and distinctly, if I'm correct, Egyptian at that. And in, and why this is important is because later on, Egypt does figure out how to deal with them. But it takes them a hot minute to do it. And they weren't just in Egypt. They traveled all up and down. Yep. Why this book focuses on the Hyksos, I'm not going to blame authors. I really distinctly think it's from the perspective of whoever anonymously put this here. Like almost on purpose, misdirection for some reason. But no, no, this, this, this worship of the Hyksos people is where his name comes from. Um, Cause obviously like so many anthropologists, we don't know what he was called and it's a <laughs> mystery. Um, but they call him Laza Omri Baras. Um, and uh, I forget what the other, the other group of people was, what other people called him Lao Som Bale. Um, and in both cases, the name basically just means the shadowed one, the dark guy, the, the guy from the, the place that we all fear uh, who dwells there. Like that's normal for him. You know, like Bane, I was born in the darkness, etc. Um, <laughs> and uh, I mean, come on, like for a clan that I like so much, I, I, I got concerns and disappointment that I don't get details about this guy. But anyway, well, why um, you're not going to get details? And here's the important thing: there's no alive to give you details. First and foremost, he keeps this tight knit. Right, and they did that on purpose. If you want to know more about him, you have to look to his chill, his first chill, which you're about to get to, I know. But um, I want you to focus on that. The Sea Peoples aren't talking. They were eradicated. Right, that's a a theme. But I think that would please the antediluvian that occurred. That wasn't a bad thing. And when it comes to him being in darkness, don't think for a minute that this guy came up looking like a human and everyone knew that, but he's the shadowed one. I really think he was known in the sea. And I picture, to me, he's the Kraken. Yep, yep. No rhyme or <laughs> yep. reason needed. He's up and sinking people and eating people, and you ain't seen him again. And they thought the gods were on their side, is what was going on. And that's what this isn't saying. 
because there's no one alive to tell you one way or the other. Um, that's a that's a good point you make about his children, Bob, because uh, that was the source of some confusion slash frustration that I had reading the chapter. But his his first child is his first child, and the guy who goes on to be his most po- a powerful child is Montano. Montano is embraced long as hell ago, far enough that I don't think they even give us a a century estimation. But he was uh, he was an African villager who did some very, very foul stuff to his own people um, that got the, uh, the antediluvian to embrace him. Um, and that's, that's in, in other books and from other places. Um, but the point is that he is immediately, you know, the companion, the confidant. Um, he is the first. He is the, even though Lysambra has several, several children, the book doesn't even have to talk about. Um, Montano is like that popular high school quarterback who looks just like his daddy, who was a popular high school quarterback who came from, you know, whatever elevated family of athletes in your town, right? You look at this guy and it's just obvious, right? He's the one, he's the man. When the somber goes to bed, this is the guy we all listen to and we don't question it because he'll put his foot in our ass, right? (laughs) Um, I mean, you know, it, uh, put it like this. So the 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 Amici Noctis, the Friends of the Night, sometime after, uh, much closer to during recorded history, they come up, they coalesce, they be they're a thing. They're this council of Lasombra who kind of direct and guide the path of the clan. They they support Christianity um, when Rome starts drifting in that direction. Except, even these people don't want to smoke with Montano, right? If he kind of hands down a directive or says that the founder said something that's just the way it is um and then somehow for some reason after all the other children he's already had the antediluvian embraces gratiano and he's a a a wealthy a somewhat wealthy italian um and a priest uh but the distinction here that that just it's stuck in my craw, right? I was just like, something something is off. Because Montano gets essentially embraced for his commitment, right? He's he's brought into the darkness because he is he is ruthless and unflinching to a fault at the core of what he is. Graziano gets embraced after a, a he gets embraced like out of jail. And at first he doesn't want it and he, he won't even take it from the antediluvian until his alternative is actual normal death as a mortal man who's failed whatever his little plot was to bring his family to prominence. I have a quote for you that Montano said. Okay? Go ahead. Here's a good one. Let me give you some insight into him. We do not make ourselves vampires, and we are never as strong as our sires. Gratiano boasts of his strength, but if he could do what the founder did, he would, and he does not. There is always a sire to direct us, and a sire beyond him, and so back to Cain. There is no destiny for you to choose, but what your masters allow for you. Mm-hmm. Now, that should give you some insight into who this dude was. And also, do not ever forget that he didn't just do some evil things to his people. There was an ultimatum um, given to him. I wasn't going to say that because the book didn't talk. I've, I know the story. Now, <laughs> right, right. You know, you know the story, but the way you set it up, it's that. And, I, and, and if you know it, I'm going to leave you free to tell it. But you know damn well that Montano is a pimp. 
Yeah. Right? I'm a, in the good sense, right? That's the, that's the street slang I'm throwing out right there for that. Because when this clan is bickering and complaining about are we going to do the Iberian War, are we going to do this, that, or the other thing, you know, all this stuff that is bothering him, to him by that time, it's petty. It's petty and pointless. Right? That's that's really it. He's being so far from his own humanity at that point, he only cares what his sire says. Because what his sire says is what will be done. And when the clan begged Glossombra to make a choice about something, he ignored them. He did not care about the squabbles of man. And when they asked Montano, Montano went back looking at the sea. There's a pattern here. But those two are from the same pod. What Gratiano is is a baby bag bitch. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Wholesale. I'm glad we are one mind on this, right? So even when you look at Lissandra's other children, who are not in this section of the book, but I, I happen to be a fan, and you look at Montano, and you look at the Antediluvian, Gratiano does not belong with this group. Right? He's just not, he's not cut from what they're cut from. He's, he's ambitious, sure, but he's petty. He's, he's a small, small man. He's embraced from failure. And so I'll, here's what I wrote. My personal opinion, uh, Gratiano's amb- ambitious, boisterous. He's a man of his time. And I think he was brought into the clan as a, uh, as a plot, right? Antediluvian says, I need mm-hmm. loyalty. I need effectiveness. But I know that even though I didn't embrace him, the people my own children embraced are not stupid enough to overplay their hand without some incentive. Right? They're not going to just show me that they're not made of what I want them to be made of without an enticement, an opportunity. And so I personally think that Graziano is there to draw out those who aren't truly, truly committed. Right? And you see it. You see it. There's a, I forget exactly how the, how the book describes it, but there comes to be kind of a, a factional division between people who are lining up against big loud Gratiano and people who recognize and accept the status quo with, with Montano being the one who has always made decisions in the antediluvian instead. Um, let me, uh, let me see. The, uh, the takeaway I got from that is that the uh, Amici Noctis are kind of this group of La Sombra that get together and they handle their business and they're all kind of like, well, we have these things, we need to get together, we need to organize. And then Graciano and uh, uh, Montano kind of sit off to the side and do their own damn thing. Whatever mm-hmm. the Amici Noctis have going on, they're so far above that. They've got their own thing going on while these guys kind of handle their own petty squabbles. If they have things that they need them to handle, that word gets passed down between the two of them. But from the most part, there's a clear and obvious separate between yeah. those two and, and the it- rest of the clan. And it makes sense. It makes sense to me because, like Bob said, if you can't rely on the antediluvian to step out onto the balcony like the Popa and give his pronouncement of what the agenda is for this month, <laughs> right? And Montano, it's a 50-50 chance whether or not he's going to give a shit. And Gratiano, you can't really trust because you know he's a little bit snakish. Well, uh, a group of productivity-minded Lissambra come together as the friends of the night and say, okay, we're, we're the ones who are going to pass down pronouncements. That's what it feels like to me. Well, I feel we need some light shed on this story. It's a lot of, like, some dark clans we rolled through, Cappadocia's uh, interest mm-hmm. to La Sombra. Nick, help us with the truthful and accurate Tordor. 
<laughs> um, yes, the uh, the Toreador uh, story uh, brought to us by uh, Catherine of Montpelier, who's a well-known Toreador historian. Um, she boasts having probably the most complete um, library of uh, of historical documents uh, of all the uh, of all the clans. Uh, she lays down what is uh, probably the the definitive account of of well the the clan Toreador history, and it starts out with uh, with Ishtar, um, who is a well a bull dancer. Um, a lot of people use the term bullfighter. Um, Ishtar, uh, this young lady, she beautiful and gorgeous in all aspects of uh, of her nature. Of course, uh, she more dances with the bulls. And uh, there's some other people who say that nah, it wasn't wasn't her. It was Eric Hell, the the sculptor, who was a who was a guy. Um, really, that's a just a different uh, a different philosophy, I guess. A, a kind of the way that uh, that that would be. But uh, she more enjoyed the uh, the finer things in uh, in in the the first city or the second city, and. Uh, was uh, was very close with Kane, you know. Obviously, they had a very personal relationship. Um, she was the kind of the uh, the light that shone over that city. And uh, when all these other uh, antediluvians started getting these i these high concept ideas of of potentially like rising up and overthrowing um, the other guys, it, it left a bad taste in her mouth, and she didn't really want to be a part of it at all. And uh, and kind of separate herself from from the rest of them, you know, it's cause she didn't want to be a part of that, uh, that boorish, uh, behavior. And she didn't want to, didn't really want to upset anyone and, and kind of wanted to, you know, stay and enjoy life as it were. Um, and, and through that, obviously when Cain came back, he recognized that, which is why all of the other clans were cursed, uh, and, and, you know, and banished from the city. Uh, whereas, uh, she was not, she was, uh, she was given a blessing that her and all of her kind, throughout eternity will of course um, be the people whose whose sole responsibility it is to to bear the burden of preserving um, artistic endeavors um, for all of uh, all of humankind can I can I can I pause it right here to, to ask you something I know you're not done but okay yeah in all of these sections obviously we have an in-character narrator here however, I think this one takes the prize for being the most um, unreliable or the most uh, fisherman-like out of all of them. That's because we haven't gotten to uh, to Zemis yet. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is no doubt every single section in this book has an unreliable narrator telling you the story. This one paints in so beautifully obvious in the Toreador fashion as all roses should be preserved perfectly. I am personally in tears. Uh, Mike put down, and I'm going to throw him under a bus because there's just no way you get away from this. We're going to have tons of Mike-isms, I know it. Oh, <laughs> Tordor was worshipped in Sumer before making their way to Crete and siring the Minotaur of myth and legend? How in the F-bomb does a mortal king demand the embrace of an antediluvian, he says. Nick, help Mike out. Demand? I don't know. Uh... Really, she she bestowed it as a gift uh, upon the uh, the child of King Minos in this uh, 
Minoan civilization, which is probably a precursor to to, to most Greek civilizations because they were way ahead of their time. Of course, they would be with uh, with someone like Ishtar uh, in their presence. But uh, unfortunately, this child itself couldn't fully handle the beast that was bestowed upon it um, and, and was driven mad uh, to the point of being a white, um, in which uh, obviously she came up with this uh, this idea that uh, naturally they would have to build a labyrinth or, um, you know, this uh, magnificent uh, place to hold this child, which uh, obviously they both still loved uh, quite deeply, um, even though the, the terror that had befallen it. So anyone who's a fan of Chicago by Night in any edition can look up Helen of Troy and learn that that story is full of shit. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> Undeniably. Look up Helen of Troy. Card carrying. Is it, I'm blinking astounded that this is even mm-hmm. here. Because of one thing. This book is supposed to be a how-to play, culture-to-know, history of. Right? Yep. And it's so... uh, This is really where there's a heavy departure in this book. um, From being, are these even useful to me anymore? Right? As As an ST, as a player, you've got to look at this and be like, okay, why am I reading this if it's going to be so blatant? Um, it's a tough call. But moving on. Yes, sir. <laughs> um, we, uh, you know, obviously the Minoan civilization goes through what it goes through. Um, and uh, we won't even talk about it. <laughs> but uh, the uh, we end up with Greece. And uh, and obviously the Bruja uh, established this this pillar that we've already heard of that's that's known as Greece. But they couldn't be anything without what is the great, uh, the great Toreador to help inspire these beautiful artworks. Um which of course uh, get uh, put out all over the uh, all over the Greek world, and uh, there is a particular thing that caught my interest. It, it was this idea of uh, the Toreador bragging about, "Look what we did in Greece! Look at all the amazing things we've done!" And uh, it all would have been better if it wasn't for the curse of Uriel, which is the first time I've ever heard of this. Have any of you guys heard of the Curse of Uriel? Towards Cain, yes. Towards in, in the t- oh. continue. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and so it starts moving on, and uh, and we get to the uh, the glory and the fall of Rome, and they they kind of start taking a look over at the other side across the sea, and they start thinking, well, maybe we should just go over there, see what things are like over there. Can't be that bad. Right, it's either that or we hang out around with the Bruja over in Carthage. So they head on over to Rome and uh, and they start doing their inspiration there, but they're a little bit mm, just held back. You know, they're these venturer there and they're very staunch. Uh, you know, like uh, restrictive. They're really focused on warring. Uh, it seems to be kind of the nature of it. And every time they try and inspire this greatness, is just ah. Uh, little bit oppressed by the Ventru, and it's just it's kind of rough for him um and there is a great little sidebar in here where camilla gives his account of uh of what happened with the toreador in rome um and uh you may notice it's a little bit different than the uh than the story we heard in uh in in road of desire but uh the little snippet i'm gonna i'm gonna read for you 
The orgies of blood were legendary, even among their Ventru allies. Rome was a time of unrivaled decadence for the Torridor. When more than a few of them chose to walk the road of desire, now called the road of sin, before Ventru struck an alliance with the Torridor and allowed them free reign in the Eternal City, Rome was strong. Torridor decadence and corruption spread like a poison throughout the city and the empire. It weakened the patrician families and the emperors. It even tainted the Ventru in the works. The Torridor might have sought to build on Rome, but in the end, they destroyed everything they touched until Rome fell to the barbarian hordes. Yeah, Brentron. What's that, Brentron? So, that was Camilla, right? That yep. was uh, Camilla, yep. the, the friend and lover of Tanit Ball Sahar, one of the four people that carried on the road of desire after the founder left, and he's saying that um, because the Toreador, who it sounds as though he was saying most of them were jumping up on that road all left and right, they're the ones that brought down Rome? That's what this says. I feel as though there's a huge disconnect here. It's, it's not about a huge disconnect. Um, this uh, this Torter section is a huge disconnect. It's, <laughs> um, it's, 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 like, it's like the Harpy of the Dark Ages wrote this. Right? <laughs> it's the rumor. You'd be the judge, right? Um, because we know Camilla was not on Road of Kings, of course was quote-unquote a sinner, and uh, did what it did instead of Road of Sin, beautifully written. This came after that book. And now it's like, okay, well, this is what... It's a sidebar... Right, so we know it's not the author anymore. It's like it's like somebody inserted this. Well, Camilla said this. Yeah. What are the reasons Camilla would say that? Maybe maybe it's from before. Maybe he hadn't met. No, it can't be from before. I I don't know. I can't think of a good reason. Right, me neither. Me neither. I can't. Think yep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, given the the time periods in which these these books came along, they're very close to each other. Um, it it could have just been. The simple thing that uh, there was two chips passing in the night. They never quite caught each other on what the what the full story was. It's hard to speculate, uh, and unfortunately, that's kind of what we're what we're stuck with um, until you know we uh, we find people who were there behind the scenes at the time, and you know, and, and they're willing to talk about the the uh, the choices that were made. The but until only then, thing we're you can think of is that Camilla did it to get back at them uh, for whatever reason. And, and that purpose could be abandoning what they were doing in Rome and, and rotating on, or to have a reason to fall guy. Like they're, you know, because you got to remember the Road of Kings. Yeah, they had supporters, but they were also defaming Camilla and uh, Tanith Ball Sahar. So it does make sense now. That I now I put focus thought into it, where perhaps this is the revenge of that. This is stepping forward. This is casting more aspersion. If I'm on Road of Sin, then you need to acknowledge that you were here too, and all the things that you did. You don't get to walk off in the sunset. Nobody knows about your crimes. You know, I'm telling it all. I'm telling it on the mountain. He basically, Camilla is the Takashi 6 9 of the Venture Clan. <laughs> wow. I think wow. significantly less gel time. Road of Snitches. I didn't remember that one. Road of Snitches. Lead <laughs> <laughs> to the pit. Uh, so, um, moving on past that, obviously, uh, Things started to separate between what's Rome and what's the Byzantine Empire, and, uh, and Christianity started to really take root in uh, in both of these uh, these empires. And um, 
it was a terrible burden that was uh, that was tossed upon the uh, the Toreador clan at this time, where these barbarians came in and tried to destroy all the greatness that had been created in Rome, um, even under the uh, the uh, the staunch suppression of, of the Ventru clan in which they, uh, they pushed that outward into the remainder of the kingdom that they could trying to preserve these, uh, these artworks and these legacies of, uh, of the, the Roman empire and the, and the Byzantine empires. Uh, what that ended up coming to would be, uh, well, the, the culmination of chivalry. And we took a we took these venture ideologies of, of of war and uh and conquering and we really decided to uh blossom them into a beautiful flower um in, in a true code of conduct uh worthy i guess uh, of you know of, of canine influence and and with that it's that's how we ended up with the the high ideals of chivalry and the uh well the courts of love all right, DJ, so Zemisi clan, because I am done with Dardo. I am done. Yeah. I don't know if it's Nick's voice, but I hate them. I didn't hate them until we went over this section. Like, F them. I'm done hearing them. We're just yeah. done. Zemis, save me, DJ. All right. Well, with Zemis, what we're taking a look at is it's, persp- it's uh, reported to you or spoken through the author, which is Oscar, who's an Obertist um, scholar to a certain degree. But he also happens to be teaching someone all this information regarding the clan. So the way that it teaches paints us in all courses. This is, once again, what we were leading up before. Legend paints it that Janosch had focused all of his vitae to embrace and or resemble something more than what actually transcend the mortal form. I I have to pause for a moment as I visibly cringe before the camera to let you know that <laughs> the way that it's placed literally says, hey, I was Kane's childer, and now I want to put myself in a position where if I do choose to make a special flower, that special flower is going to start off as a flower, not as a seed. So let me go ahead and pour everything of this into someone else who's going to be more than mortal. Now, that's just one aspect of it, right? Um, and when he embraces this mortal, this this person who has oracular ability, this magi, this seer of sorts, and then we start getting into a sidebar that says that he poured all his hate into it as well. Why then would you embrace a monster if at that? And if it was an accident that you didn't even think he was going to make it out of this pit, out of whatever it was alive why not stop it at that moment in time, right? So the way I kind of viewed it at this moment is it seemed like a convenient excuse to me for his lineage to act like they do. It ain't his fault that he was born this way. His daddy been training him this way the entire time. And I'm just like, <laughs> don't blame the Zemisi for being cruel. It's just the way he was. All right, sure. Um, so much so that a couple of, of like distinguishing features are Zemisi at this time didn't even care for his brethren. He was just so far beyond what he felt for his other kin that the only other person he may have felt anything for would have been Ishtar. But that was more out of convenience as well. And that's only because he looked at Ishtar, and Ishtar looked at him with her eyes, and he was like, all right, I'll go ahead and sculpt you to make you that much more beautiful. And she was like, thanks, Daddy, and walked away. <laughs> but, I... <laughs> but it gets better because... <laughs> well, it, it gets better because like at that point in time, he goes like, well, I'm kind of done here. There's nothing else for me to do. What's the new reach? So he starts to travel. Um, and oh. during his travels, yes, sir. You, you, you missed the part. He he's also the one who made Nosferatu the way he is. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm shaking my head right now crap. because supposedly, supposedly that is uh, that is the way it turned. It was one aspect of one end to the other. But then why would he care to do so? Um, and once again, this also leads to the fact that he just didn't give a shit enough that he's like, I'm out. 
he he left to the point where he started traveling once again, and this always happens, right? There's always a story about that that canine who happens to travel around. Um, that during his travels, it led to him embracing his three main children, who are Demdre, Yorak, the the, the Draken, and one other, um, which we'll mention in a bit. Actually, you know what? Let's just mention him now, Yonak. But yep. we'll get to Yonak in a bit as to why he's important um, to the story. He'll make it all the way through to Africa, in which he's surprised he actually meets other Knights. Um, and that, that throws him off by surprise. If he was the, the product of his own maker, then who are these Liban, right? Um, it doesn't touch it and it leaves it purposely vague. Um, I guess maybe for those of you who want to reach, you know, the Ebony Kingdom book, Kindred of the Ebony Kingdom, that might be a lead. But it was interesting there. He'll go the opposite direction and start heading over to Transylvania, where apparently there's a sidebar that might suggest even his progenitor, Jonas, decided to go to Transylvania to, to even find him as the potential um, children at this point, and there he meets the entity known as Kapala. Now, the thought process here, of course, is you, you have someone who has had, or supposedly had, like an oracular ability and ability and such, and, and for someone so far removed from their humanity, it's almost as if power was calling to power, and it's the only reason it would even want to interact with it. Um, and at this point in time, here's where we start getting inconsistencies as well, that these these beings don't view what they view as their curse to actually be a curse. Apparently, to 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 Zemiti, the land was the strongest here, and it's how the, the the clan curse is reading not that much as much as it is a purity. It's an anchor for them because it's exactly part of what they are. And I think it's also part in here to just kind of introduce folks as to like how we start getting into the Koldonic uh, Zemiti, right? Um, moving forward from there. Time passes and the Great Flood comes along. And of course, during that period in time, we start getting the story of how the Great Flood began the the Nemesni and the creation of the Voivodids, which in turn produced what we know as hospitality for the Zemitsi, right? All your traditions are starting to come from what they see as being the Great Flood. And during this Great Flood period, this is actually when the Eldest goes missing. What are its trappings? Who knows? But at this moment in time is when we have a recorded um, timepiece for when it no longer is about. Yanosh, who we were speaking about, becomes important because it's during this period in time as the post-flood starts to come around that it, it decides that we should continue this pseudo-feudal structure and it really works out well for them. They kind of, at this point, start going like, all right, well, our, our broods are going to sit over in this corner, in this corner, in this corner. Everyone's going to pass. You say hi. Just knock on the door. We'll be all right with it. Um, everyone else, fuck them. Um, you either <laughs> pay tribute. You don't. And if you don't, then that's cool with me because then we have things to play with. Um, other things that kind of come into this is that they take such an absconded view of just sitting so far back that we don't even talk about what happens during the period in time for Rome or Carthage because they're just stuck in the Transylvanian mountains there. And it's not until we start taking a look at the Ventry starting to poke their head in, um, in the form of the, the Hungarians, Nova Arpad and Geza Arpad and other Ventry that start poking their heads that it starts becoming worthy of note because they're like, wait a second, we were here first. This is this is us staying in our land, but now you're starting to push us out. And this is where our great rivalry starts to begin. Um, and it's during this period in time as well that we start seeing Yorak actually start to push outside of his boundaries uh, by taking a look and embracing Chagra, the Roy tribe, right? Um, this is where we start taking a look at potential Huns and others um, to start expanding outside of the mountain type areas. Other things of note that I was able to take away from this section were that they don't want to talk about the fact that at one point or another, some Zemitsi decided to embrace a Tremere. There it is. At one point, they were just embraced. No one wants to talk about it. No one wants to let that be. Like, 
It wasn't that it was stolen from him. At one point, someone just decided it was a good idea to do so. Or at least that's the way this story paints it. Um, and other things that kind of bring into that is that the whole war starts to happen in terms of how they, they start going after um, the, the Tremere at this point for, for them having imposed upon them. And then you also have your allies in the form of Nosferatu and Gangrel that start fighting against them. Um, then you also end up getting other pieces of the puzzle uh, that start coming along your way, but the fight just comes to a standstill. There's some sidebar speaking about Ruthven and how he's unable to hold certain things back. Um, there's also talks of divergences in terms of the Zemitsi, such as like Gilbertus and the Forgotten Library over in Constantinople, and how it paints them as scholars and preservists, um, and how towards the current run of where we are now uh, during this period in time, it's the young who are starting to rebel against the structure of the clan because they are no longer wanting to be underneath the the structure of the boy booted. That that makes sense. I uh, I could see it. It's a definitely an, inter- an alternate view. I remember listeners to think of who this is. This is no Beartooth telling the story. It's not yep. meant to be accurate. None of this is. It's meant to have mm-hmm. nuggets that draw you in to want to learn more. Obviously, to get other books, previous books that go in more detail to get accuracy. Just remember that. Um, I know we were riffing on it a bit. We still will. But that's the that's the point of it. I think for what. DJ's covered that more than what's the whistle. For instance, we know for a fact it's only supposed to be Noah that makes it on an ark. <laughs> Unless the Zemis Antediluvian founder's name is Noah, this story is a little crazy. We washed away all the evil <laughs> in the world except the most evil vampire ever made. To be fair, Bob, he had already made it to the Carpathian Mountains, conquered all of Europe, had been beaten back by <laughs> werewolves, and established voivodes on top of the Carpathians before the flood ever came. That's true. He was an accomplished guy. All right. <laughs> so moving on then, Venture, because that is Venture, Nick. Help us, man. The story starts out with the with the telling of uh, of, of Venture, who at that time uh, goes by a slightly different name, but Artha. Uh, but he is chosen uh, specifically by Kane uh, because Kane recognizes magnificence when he sees it. And uh, and he, he calls over Enoch and he says, hey, this guy over here, he's amazing. I'm not going to embrace him, but I think you should. And, uh, and of course, uh, uh, Enoch, seeing the, uh, the amazingness that is, that is Ventru, uh, says, oh, of course, I, I have no choice but to embrace him. He's, he's great. Kane says, good. Um, I will teach him to be a strong and noble ruler. Um, I understand you're next, but I'm going to teach him to be a strong and noble ruler, um, and he'll rule, um, you know, obviously when uh, when I leave. And uh, and obviously the rest of the clans will understand that, except for that guy over in the corner uh, in shadows. He's not going to be able to understand that. <laughs> um, and that's kind of the, uh, the way that uh, the entire Venture clan uh, philosophy kind of goes. It, it talks about the first city, it talks about the second city, and it's always hammering home these ideas that Cain chose Ventru and only Ventru to be the one who rules, and constantly this Shadow Lord is trying to disrupt the natural course of things. Um, it happens uh, even so far as to uh, what happened with the second generation. Obviously, they were terrible leaders, and, and Ventru, he tried to help them, he really did. He, he brought them along. He said, come on, guys. There's better ways we could do this. And, and they wouldn't listen. It was their arrogance. And, and he, couldn't, he couldn't stop them from 
destroying themselves. I think it's because um, they got together and hung him up by his fighting trousers on the outside of the city gate while they got business done. <laughs> little annoying ass little brother. Oh, you watching ranting on everybody who came come back. <laughs> But obviously, you know, he uh, he he got everyone together, and he uh, he devised this plan to save the second city um, from this second generation. Um, obviously, it was only him that could uh, that could accomplish it, and uh, and uh, and that's that's kind of the way that it happened. They they, uh, they came back. Cain was he was upset, as as any father would be, um, but he uh, he recognized that uh, the venture had done the only course that was possible to him. And he said to him, he said, hey, you've done all you can here. I see that you, you left your children here to rule over the second city and you came to find me because, you know, obviously we needed to work together. But uh, what I want you to do is I want you to leave your, your children here as best you can and, uh, and, and go off out in the world and, uh, and help everyone else who, who needs a strong leadership um, because I can't do everything and you truly are the chosen one. <laughs> And that's eventually how uh, how Sparta was found. Um, as, <laughs> as a strong skip, <laughs> we go right to Sparta. <laughs> you just ignore everything. I wear Sparta. <laughs> Perhaps you all have heard of mm, Sparta. That was us too. So uh, he uh, he comes across this uh, and not not necessarily venture, but some venture come across uh, uh, what is now a uh, beautiful Sparta. And uh, and they see these these glistening warriors who only wear um, tidy brownies and uh, and carry these big bronze shields with these flowing red capes. And they say, "You are mighty fine warriors. We will teach you how to be the best warriors." Mm-hmm. And uh, and and they create these uh, well these these fine Peloponnesians. And uh, and of course they go and they take um, Athens and and the Bruja say that well, we've ruined everything for them. They would say that, but honestly, it's uh, what are you gonna do? Mortals, these were made to conquer. It's just their nature. Um, but uh, after this uh, this Greek experiment kind of uh, wibble wobbles a little bit out of control, we find ourselves in this neat little place called Rome, and uh, and they really do have the finest of people. They're all a little bit small, but. Uh, when you give them a, a shield and a sword, uh, they can stand next to each other and they can do amazing things. They can stab all of the barbarians in the north. <laughs> all of them. <laughs> Every land. Um, even those, uh, even those evil soul-sucking bastards across the the ocean to the south. <laughs> so, uh, The kind of thing they say is that is that Rome is really their demonstration of of how amazing Clan Venture is, um, and they use Carthage as the example of uh, of how they were destined to rule. If that city was so great, why did it fall so easily? Um, and and boy, did it fall easy, <laughs> as we all know is not true at all. <laughs> um, but after that, you get this big East Coast, West Coast beef with uh, with the Byzantine Empire, uh, Ventru, and the uh, and now the well the the collapsed Roman Empire, Ventru, the that turn into the Christian Church, um, and they kind of work on this this weird spread out everywhere kind of uh, well you could say offensive to to gain these different territories, and that's. 
that's how you get like uh, Jurgen of Magdeburg out in Transylvania laying down thunder and uh, and the venture ever closer pushing through and trying to get more purchase in Iberia and in Avalon's already taken up by Mithras at this time. But uh, a lot of people think that uh, it's this idea that potentially the Ventru are in this, uh, in this death row, right? Where they still haven't caught up with the demise of the Roman empire and they're trying to take more land and assume more power, but they're rotting from the core. Well, at least so that's that part's a right. sidebar. <laughs> at least that part's right. That's the sidebar. That's not the author. <laughs> so, so, any questions, fellas? About the venture? Are we good? Oh, fine. Yes. Yes. So, why? Mike's how is it the Rome is so important, but they don't talk about Camilla? No. Like at all. Oh, there we go. We get it. You already know that. Mike, mm-hmm. we did the review with you in it. Mm-hmm. But you got to have a counter narrative. These people are the politicians, no, politicians. Why would you, if you have this dude who's such an embarrassment that was the prince of your most important city at the time they had their most important victory and you don't mention him at all. Once again. You mean he who shall not be named? Once again. <laughs> You were, trudging, you were bringing up things that you were not meant to bring up, Mike. You have forgotten your goge. Apparently, you have uh, not learned appropriately. Um, but let's uh, let's just rehash it, shall we? Thou shalt not talk about Prince Camilla, because Prince Camilla betrayed us on Road of Bling. <laughs> he became the Road of Booty Touching. Otherwise known as the Road of Desire. Later, Road of Sin, the church declared it wasn't our fault. We tried. And, and he chose to do it. He chose it. The Tordor fled from him in droves to go and help Greece. You heard it. They helped Greece. They had to help them because the Bruja had already lost Carthage because it was terrible what they did over there. And we helped them out of Carthage by eradicating them. Right? Naturally. Now, where's Camilla? It doesn't matter because we never talk about that person again. They chose to go against the clan. We need solidarity. And of course we have it, because we have the burden of leadership. It's not even the right. It's the burden. It is what we must do. And I understand it's bitter. It's choice. I understand it's bitter, but he, the Dark Father has spoken. Right. Okay, sure. Yep, moving on. You know, like they say even to this day, like uh, when, when a Ventru prince fails, you can still hear the sound of a flute playing through the garden. <laughs> so a little bit here the humorous side a little bit here we got the high claim tactics real quick to round out this chapter and uh just to briefly go through it courtly tactics is in here they will give you an idea of the social political games that you play on, on how to make friends allies and use them efficiently how to uh possibly use your resources to gain more leverage things of that nature also the art of warfare from the high clan perspective to highlight that war by blood and steel is conducted by mortal assets. That's what they go through because it's a matter of war of land. At night, one should not sully yourself to combat, but if you need to, it is because someone is trying the fine art of betrayal, typically. Assassination is another good tool to use uh, or to have used on you, expect it, know it. They tell you it like it's going to happen to get used to it. It's, it's just what it is. Even so far as to highlight that your alleged friends, your allies, will one time will betray you. 
that's going to happen and get used to it. And that's sort of the high clan mentality, right? It's what you can't get, Mike. How could you be so... This whole chapter, this whole book is written from such an arrogant angle that it's... I mean, that's what it's designed to be. It's to, it's to teach you arrogance by example and by reading what you have going on and how to roleplay, which is why I vomit just to read it. <laughs> right? I can't stand it. I cannot stand it. This book is written for that purpose and does that purpose. But the entire time, it's like, I uh, let's just, I, I can't. Eyes are burning. But, but on that note, if you're role-playing in a LARP in the Dark Ages, this is a section that might actually be useful for you in it. Um, I have no interest in playing a concept that would use it, but I see the usefulness that's there. Fair enough. Um, they mentioned Domains of the High Clan. We're not going to. It's a lot of land that they have and they rule over. It's in the book. You'll love it. Uh, traditions and perversions, though, I kind of want to look at because they're important for V5 players and maybe those who didn't understand where this stuff came from. Uh, Mike and DJ. So what I can tell you is it, it def this is this is where one of the nuggets are buried, uh, where people are going like, with V5, why would they ever go through this? It's because it exists, and, and we see it here. Um, some of the sacraments that we're taking a look at is the embrace. Um, the embrace was something highly ritualized. Um, back then it, it was a matter of not only a getting the permission but if you did get the permission then you were able to go through the entire ritual of being able to put people in your coffin it almost speaks to the Anne Rice thing of an interview with a vampire in terms of like how flowery it is at certain points but that's just the, the way it was or if you already embraced and then got permission then people would be coming to welcome you with open arms or at least there would be something in terms of a specific type of brood who'd be able to go ahead and do that and it was to signify the nobility and honor that came along with it Notably enough, this isn't the guide to the high clans. Notice how it's missing from the low clans here, and it's because of that specific arrogance, the, the pomp and circumstance that comes along with it. Um, Mike, did you have anything on the embrace that you caught off of that? Well, I mean, I just I like the the level of expression that they give us here about how your embrace as a neonate into a clan is never just I snatch you up at the party and pull you into a corner because I've been watching you for a couple weeks, right? They talk about how the ritual, whatever the ritual is for this particular sire is reflective of both the sire, the sire's road, the clan's philosophy in the area, and it, it's, it's symbolic of what you are accepting the responsibility of stepping into and all that you're going to be given by those who have uh, chosen you as worthy. So there's a lot of fluff around it, but I like it for the, the, the mindset establishing stuff. I agree there. And that also kind of leads us into marriage. Marriage, V5, Victoria, Ash, and Tigarius. Yep, we're at it again. And marriage is usually, and still is at this moment in time, a matter of a political symbol. Here are your alliances that are being made. Um, they talk about certain portions of it as well, where it's also a matter of passion. But that's really on the lower end of things. It really does come more into the political segment of it. And it's usually, not always, but usually uh, sealed with a blood oath in which both participants already had, you know, two sups of their blood at that moment in time, but by the third, this is where they start sharing it. They won't do something as gauche as feed from each other publicly, but they'll have them in their chalices waiting. There will be and might not be a ring to kind of signify it, something once again more symbolic than anything else, um, but it's there to go ahead and cement those alliances. Um, and I, I thought that was really interesting because this is the first time I read the book, and now seeing how it translates over to V5, I thought that was pretty on point to actually see this happen here. Uh, Mike, would you be able to capture our last two? Uh, yeah. So there's uh, predictably um, an emphasis on on blood oaths among the high clans, right? 
you, uh, you, you make a promise and you say it's, it's me and my sire and my purpose or like my sire and cane or uh, my road and my cat's last name. And you, you say whatever your, your holy words are to say how significant this promise you're making to a Lord is, right? And then in return, the Lord says um, similarly lofty words to add gravity to the promise they make to you, which is to care for you and provide for your family in the event of disaster and, you know, uh, lead you in an honorable way. Um, and so in, in, any, in any oath that's taken, um, there's that liege lord back and forth and I liked the way it was presented because it it condenses that issue of reputation right among these high clans we have all of this stuff we do but what it's really about is is status and, and, and the word that you've given and, and people being able to rely on that and another thing about that is this isn't also the first time we see oaths happen. Uh, I'm almost there to say that seeing oaths written here and how it pertains um, to the group in general, we'd start taking a look at how oaths applies in the later system, such as Requiem. Requiem has it for their Invictus. Um, in fact, it's also built into it. Once again, something that we're taking a look at in terms of how these high clans see this type of symbolism. What is the oath to be able to, the, the strength behind words and how they keep a civility amongst themselves. Uh, and the last one, last one that we kind of have to have to touch on is final death. Um, among people who are so wrapped up in status and reputation and acquiring temporal power and material possessions, when a person dies, it's a thing, right? You don't just die and everybody moves on like nothing happened. Generally, you have some holdings, some oaths that have been sworn to you, some oaths that you've sworn, uh, some capital that has to be accounted for after the local society acknowledges your passing uh and there's some some ritual and some sacrament wrapped up in that process as well they have actual funerary rites i agree all right i got nothing to go on there guys other than to say that, that that just about covers that uh in terms of what we want to look for they naturally go over heraldry the purpose of the court like it being the budding of elysium as quarteries gathered to basically high etiquette and decorum uh, that they more or less create, depending on where they're at. Prince usually is a good guide for that and what they tolerate. And the budding aspects of Elysium is what we're talking about. Sport is uh, is interesting. This is something that uh, you'll read about, but the way I took it, I kind of agree with what you have here, Mike. It's kind of diplomatic, but it's, it's, but it's also warfare approved, where the goal isn't destruction, right? Sport could be something like we're going to hunt down a lupine this evening. The elders and I, and, and, and whoever goes with us, will discuss that point again about someone you wanted to embrace. Yes, of course, sire. I will go with blah, 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 blah. We bring our people. We go and do it. And that's uh, interesting, but no. Like, you could you could see that. Doesn't need, not much need to be talked about there. Chapter 2, however, goes into quite a bit. And uh, take us to Chapter 2. Nick, you're going to take us through the speed round here. Um, so, that, in interest of time, obviously. Yeah, uh, chapter two is all about uh, basically building characters and uh, and giving you an idea as to how to uh, portray them in well uh, a high clan environment. So the the first part it kind of goes over is how to understand the difference between uh, playing a uh, a Canaanite of privilege and 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 just a standard Canaanite. 
and uh and it goes on with uh life as a noble uh for canites um how to capitalize on opportunities and uh and things that are that are exceptional just for being in that uh it gives you a chance to understand how court fealty works etiquette um how to curry favor and uh and the value of honor uh it gives you interesting tidbits on how to build character goals and ambitions don't sleep on this section uh this is really the uh the basic forge for how your character is really going to be built and and role played throughout the uh throughout the character life it'll give you uh ideas on downtime and maturation if you're going to be playing an extended chronicle uh so important things to to make sure that you understand as a player uh to build success over time so it's making sure you're in the right place the right time to give your character the best opportunities over an extended chronicle. Um, it helps you with uh, with ideas on how to choose roads and how to progress along them. Things called moments of truth or these epiphanies, which allow you to kind of scale yourself up and down along um, different hierarchies and ethics of your, of your road. It's very important stuff. Make sure you don't sleep on it. Um, it goes over quarter replay and there's a great sidebar in this section talking about how to build uh, a character that's good for a group versus a dynamic character that maybe would suppress the fun for everybody. Um, and that has to do with, uh, with very exciting concepts that necessarily don't work in a group, uh, in a group setting. So be sure to take a look at this. It goes over uh, a lot about linguistics and academics in this setting. Uh, we're kind of spoiled in this modern age where we have things like Rosetta Stone and internets. But, uh, but back then, coming across information, tutors, and things like that was a lot more difficult than it is now. Um, so be sure to kind of jump in there, uh, take a look at that section, and get a better understanding of what uh, even academic life was back in that time frame. For sure. And the, uh, the next one we get to is the Chapter 3. And this one's going, it's called Noble by Association. It covers the bloodlines that are in here. And this one we got True Bruja, Salubri, uh, the Lamia, and I believe Giovanni. And uh, that's that's a mouthful. Um, initially, I was going to say we're going to go deep and we'll go over them too. However, I think we're going to do this much like the Low Clans. I think that's something that's in here. We've heard of these bloodlines. We do know of them. They're not so dramatically different as to throw you off as what they have, but they're told from a... It's interesting the High Clan book has these bloodlines in there. And I, I think that's... I'm going to say it's by accident. In other words, I'm going to say by accident. It's like it's like the High Clan's such a focus on the nobles and blah, blah, blah. Why do you put the Dirtwater bloodlines in here then? Right? And the answer <laughs> well, is because we didn't include them in the other book. But they so are Dirtwater bloodlines of High Clans. Right. So tell me where the Dirtwater comes from for Salubri. What's the clan that had that before Eh, never mind. Yeah, there you go. Okay, just, just checking. We're gold there. We're gold. So, um, that's what I'm going to say about that. It's uh, also, I would argue some of these are more popular now than they were back in the day. Right? For, like, to this point. Uh, the typical clans that you play that I've seen the most of uh, out of this book, even, um, they're here. But, when someone, if you ever hear a debate about the Salubri or the Giovanni, and you hear folks go at it. It's always interesting how well-versed they are in it. But then turn and ask them, how many have you played? And, and you'll get a mm. disparity. Like, oh, I never had a chance to. I never did. And I've always been like, hmm, interesting. 
I wonder why that is. Well, it does give you some ideas in here. Um, in particular, how do I put this? Ashur comes up again in the salubri section of history. Right, talking about the Ashura, Ashura, all that nonsense. Mm-hmm. So you get to see that and, and some tidbits. But ultimately, um, is it worth splitting this podcast into two? Do other? No. We're going to try to do this in one. It's it's here. Got a, a high claims. You can check it out. Chapter four, though, in Arsenal of the Elders, we're going to do our typical. We're going to have Mike crank down two. Mike, give me your best elder discipline in here that you enjoyed and your best combo discipline uh, that's in here to wet the whistle. Um, So... Definitely by far. Now, I did not even get into the ones, uh, the 8th and ninth level Elder Disciplines, because they're preposterous, and also I'm not sure how you get you in that low. Um, but there is a level 7 vicissitude discipline called Transcend the Flesh. Uh, the way the description starts off, it's like, oh, it's just for getting foreign objects out of your body. There's some other discipline in some other book that will let you do that anyway. Um, but it goes on to describe that Zemis elders can, while staked, slowly inchworm fleshcraft themselves such that technically they're not moving. I can take the meat from the left side of my arm and move it to the meat from the right side of my arm, and I haven't moved. I'm the same body mass, but I can relocate myself while staked. I can also, given enough time, expel a stake from my body um, with this uh, ability. Right? And then also it applies to weird blood poisons and, and, and weapons that might have you pinned somewhere, things like that. It's got real practical applications, but the visual and the emergency application of that elder power was fun, fun to read, and my highest recommendation in terms of practicality. So when you gotta um, move your meat? Yeah, right, That's you gotta one. move your meat. <laughs> Without being, you know, without leaving your seat. When I got to move right. without moving. Right. When you got to move your meat without leaving your seat. <laughs> well done. I love it. I love it. I love it. Combo discipline me, Mike. Um, the, so let me preface this. There are a lot of very cool combo disciplines in this book. The best ones are not the high level ones. You can do some really interesting stuff with disciplines at like two and three. If you can find somebody to teach you one of these. But that being said, um, <laughs> the salubri. <laughs> no, no, I won't go with that one. I'll go with um, eminence of shade conquering blood for coolness factor. It's not the most practical, but if you are a Zamisa or a Lasombra that have the fifth level of your trademark discipline, both in both cases, it allows you to become amorphous. You're a blob, either of shadow or blood, right? You can combine that with the highest level of dominate to materially enter someone's body and then possess them. With the only catch being that you cannot feed if you are in the Zemis blood form because that will result in you being diabolized by the person you entered. Um, but uh, indefinitely, right? you can just inhabit them. Like once both of those initial roles to get it done succeed, you have you have a, a meat body now that, that you, you're sharing with someone else and you can take over their agency at any time. Um, what's the downside? There are visual markers that let people know 
what's going on that it ain't all right with you, right? It might be the eyes, might be the fact that your skin's <laughs> but any vampire at all, right, who would potentially be your rival at this stage of your existence that has the slightest capacity for all specs or knowledge of how the canine body works is going to call you for being off. And that, that creates a problem. Um, but with that said, technically, if you, if you pass the roll to wake up, you could be walking around during the day as this person, if they're a ghoul, doesn't just apply to vampires. Um, and, and the visual is something out of a great horror movie. All right. All right. I'm actually going to agree with that. I like those two picks. Um, there are others. There are a bunch of others in these books, in this mm-hmm. book in particular, that could wet the whistle of anybody looking to hammer it. And, of course, it goes on the noteworthies and templates, as always, we found in these books, just like the low clans. And it brings us to the end of the book. I want to tell everybody, I, I thank you guys for coming out and again and enduring this with me. I know it's a it's a stretch, but we got a bunch of clans we had to go through, and we knew we had to hit that flavor, and we had to talk about them for everybody else. Um, I want to say, off the bat, though, get those closing remarks. Is this a book to get? Yes. Get it mm-hmm. because it's humorous. It's, it's topical. It gets you talking and looking in a different way at these high clans. The disadvantage is that it's not written for accuracy. Not to say the authors didn't, but it's written from... This is what an elder NPC might be saying to a class listening to, and it's up to you to decide what the truth is. Thus making it go to the storyteller or make it a quest to seek this information out. And there's a ton of those in here to see if this is true or not. And gives a lot of toys for the ST to play with with the players. What do you guys think? Not 100%. I, the book yep, reads like a, like a lore, lore, lore prop, and I liked it. I liked it as well. Um once again, un- unreliable narrator, but that's exactly it. There's certain nuggets that are just completely objective, and you'll know it when you see it. Yeah, I'd recommend this book as well. Um, there are uh, several bits, like just for you know understanding the time frame you're playing the clan. Of course, I recommend it for that. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> this is a two thumbs up from Brennan. So, I'm, I'm wishy washy on it. Um, I'm not. I'm not a big fan of the uh, of the underlying narrator sections, but uh, I I actually think there's there's cool stuff in here in the player section that you should check out. And believe it or not, I'm actually a fan of the of the stupid combo disciplines, merits and flaws at the end of the book. Um, so for once, I I vote for the crunch. Um, but uh, but yeah, go ahead and get it. Fair enough. Thank you guys for coming out, and as always, thank you guys for listening. This has been a treat. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to our 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you liked what you heard, please reach out and let us know on Twitter at 25 years of VTM at our email info at 25 years VTM.com on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash 25 years VTM or on our website www.25yearsvtm.com. If you would like to support us, we can be found at patreon.com slash 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade.